Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. And we have a second co-host today, friend of the podcast and colleague from Migration and Refugee Services. Dr. Todd Scribner is with us. Thanks for joining us, Todd. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And we are joined via teleconference by Carl Esbeck, Professor of, Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Missouri. Carl joined the University of Missouri faculty in 1981. There he taught classes on civil procedure, constitutional law, religious freedom, and federal civil rights litigation. Uh, while on leave from 99 to 2002, he directed the Center for Law and Religious Freedom, where he was a central part of the congressional advocacy behind the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act 2000, RELUPA, uh, very important. Uh, he also, during this leave, he served as senior counsel to the Deputy Attorney General of the U.S. Department of Justice. He's published widely in the area of religious liberty and church-state relations. And today we're going to be talking about his most recent book, Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations in the New American States, 1776 to 1833. Professor Esbeck, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, greetings from... University of Missouri, although we're locked out of our campus just now, so I'm at home. Well, thank you so much. I know this is kind of an odd way to do to do something like this, but I, I think that um, I, I'm glad that we were able to make this work out. We've kind of had this in the works for a while, um, so I'm glad that we were able to do this. First, can you just start off by giving us an overview of what this book is about? Um, it's Disestablishment and Religious Dissent. The title kind of gives a sense, but give us an overview. What was the project uh, and why, what interested you in do in overseeing this project? What were you hoping to accomplish? Uh, yeah, well, we had two interests. Of course, I had a co-editor, uh, a professional uh, historian, and um, the, the courts are increasingly uh, saying that they want to look at original public meaning when it comes to uh, our First Amendment, the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, and they've so indicated an interest in that history, and of course this is a history book, uh, in cases as recent as uh, the American Legion case, where the court used American founding history to say whether the Establishment Clause was or was not violated concerning uh, World War I War Memorial, which featured a Latin cross, a Christian cross, uh, as uh, its major centerpiece. But Down also the road from my house, actually. So yeah, yes, oh, very yeah. important to me because it would have changed the landscape of my neighborhood. <laughs> Is that the one in Bladensburg, Maryland? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was just reading about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. No, no. It's like we. It, it's right by us. The river that goes by it goes behind my house. Can you see it from your house? I can't see it from my house, but when we, if we drive, I'm not actually in Bladensburg. I'm I'm across Rhode Island Ave. Oh, now we know where you live, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's gonna rush over. All your fans are gonna start finding you. Yeah, yeah. You're protected by social distancing. Just <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Well, That's right. right. And well, there's been a couple of other kind of high profile cases, one called uh, the city of Greece, New York. Uh, the particular issue there had to do with uh, the city council opening their monthly meetings with prayer 
prayer was led by local clerics who would volunteer for that uh, assignment. And uh, then a little bit more distant, but not too distant, is the Hosanna Tabor case, a case out of the state of Michigan involving a Lutheran church. And uh, there the issue is kind of jargon, but it was the ministerial exemption, which for laity means um, the churches can hire and fire uh, their own pastors, clergy, priests, and other people who, who fit under the definition of ministers. That happened to involve uh, a religious school. So the court in all three instances said, we're going to not look at modern uh, rules-oriented uh, formula for what the Establishment Clause means, but what did it mean historically? And we're going to follow the historical precedents. So that then means that we need reliable sources of that founding history. Now we have to take another step because Americans understandably, if we think about religious liberty, we think about the federal first amendment, but uh, there never was a federal establishment in America. Uh, and so there never was a federal disestablishment. In other words, disestablishment is a multi-year movement by American colonialists who, of course, became American citizens uh, after the revolution. So what, what drove them to disestablish religion in America? And the establishments in America were in 11 of the original 13 colonies. So the process of disestablishment and why Americans moved in that direction uh, that was a state-by-state -state, uh, process, and as it turned out, pretty much each colony came state was going through their disestablishment process pretty much as a local affair. It, there wasn't a lot of crosstalk uh, among the new states. So this is a, a long wind up to what this book is about. This book is about the state-by-state -state disestablishments in the British colonies in North America, which of course became the original 13 states. But as it turns out, the, the disestablishment story on the North American soil was not just in the 13 states, and I, I should add, only 11 of the original 13 states had what we would call formal establishments. Pennsylvania and Rhode Island did not, but even in Pennsylvania, there were a lot of religious preferences for the founding faith, which was Quakers, of course, William Penn. So the disestablishment story is not just 13 stories, but it's also uh, Vermont, the 14th state, it's also Kentucky, Tennessee, the 15th, 16th states. Uh, those areas, Kentucky was influenced by Virginia, which had the Church of England establishment. Um, uh, Tennessee influenced by North Carolina, again, uh, Church of England establishment. And then there's Maine, which was carved out of Massachusetts, which is a congregational establishment up in New England. Um, and then uh, maybe of keen interest uh, 
but a new story to many of your listeners is that there were Catholic establishments uh, out in the Louisiana Purchase. Of course, there were French Catholics. The Catholic Church was established. So we deal with the first two states carved out of the Louisiana Purchase, which are Missouri, where I am, and, uh, and Louisiana. So there were French Catholic establishments there, which upon the Louisiana Purchase, 1803, were disestablished. And uh, there's also uh, a story to be told in Florida, which had a Catholic uh, establishment. And at the time of the treaty with Spain uh, in the late 1820s, upon the transfer of that real estate, which we know as East and West Florida, or just Florida, uh, there was a Catholic disestablishment. So there's just a, a lot of rich, interesting stories, all of which are the disestablishment process. And in order to know what the word establishment means in the First Amendment, or what free exercise means in the First Amendment, you there's no federal story. There's only the story of the several states. So, Professor Esbeck, when you say disestablishment, could you describe, like, give an example of what, what logistically speaking, that meant? Who did the disestablishment and how did that happen? Yeah, so, you know, excellent question. Um, in modern vocabulary, the disestablishment process was a deregulation process. So religion, including the established church, was heavily regulated by the state. So the process of disestablishment was a process of repealing those laws which regulated religion and the church. So what are those laws that are being repealed, which we're calling the disestablishment process? Maybe first and foremost, the thing we think of is the financial support for religion which was twofold. One, in America, it was twofold. Uh, one was there were taxes that were earmarked for the payment of ministerial salaries. And then the other way was through glebes. Now, glebes might be a new word to some of your listeners, although if you're in a city, there's usually a local road or highway called Glebe Road. Uh, and what a glebe... We have a, yeah, we have a glebe road. G-L-E-B-E, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Glebe. That's yep. right. And uh, I lived not too far from Glebe Road in Northern Virginia uh, when I worked out there. So what a Glebe is or was, uh, the, the government would transfer a large plot of land to the church, the established church. And the church then would manage that land. They would rent it out to local farmers and the rents then would come back and be used to operate the church. So that was financial support, which, you know, originated with the government. So getting rid of those two forms of financial support is part of deregulation. But deregulation of the religion, uh, established religion, is the government would set the, the doctrine of the church. Uh, it would decide who and how uh, uh, the church would be operated by, by officials. Uh, ecclesiastics and how one became an ecclesiastic or got promoted or in some cases got removed if they fell in disfavor with the government. And the government would also regulate the liturgy or form of service or the worship service. 
for example, the Church of England does that through the Book of Common Prayer. And uh, the Church of England would set up doctrine by the 39 articles. So you could not become a priest in uh, the Anglican Church unless you subscribe to those 39 articles. And the government also regulated the Bible, how it was translated, if it was translated at all, and, and how it was translated, in our case, translated into English. So that was a, a matter of government regulation. And also uh, the government would regulate dissenting religions. Dissenting re there, there were religions which were outlawed. For example, for a long time, Catholic religion was unlawful uh, in Great Britain. But there were also dissenting religions which were lawful but only tolerated. So, for example, you could be a Quaker or you could be a Baptist uh, or you could be a Puritan, but you were a dissenter, so you were tolerated by the government. So the government would say, well, you could have a meeting house and we're going to issue a license for that meeting house. You couldn't call it a church because you were a heretical religion. <laughs> you weren't the Church of England. But you could call it a meeting house, but it had to be licensed. And then anybody who preached there had to have a license from the government. So if you were a Presbyterian, you had to have a license to preach, and you had to have a meeting house that was licensed by the state or the government so that your people could meet on a Sunday morning or, or whatever. So all of this was part of the establishment. Another way is the government would say, well, you had to be of the favored religion or you couldn't hold a public office. You had to be of the favored religion or you couldn't go to Cambridge or Oxford. You had to be of the favored religion or you couldn't get a military commission. And so you couldn't, if you had to be of the favored religion or you couldn't be a faculty member at university, so on and so on. So all of that was part of, uh, or, you, or you couldn't vote if uh, you weren't of the favored religion or of a dissenting religion. So if you were Catholic in Great Britain, you couldn't vote. You were neither tolerated, nor were you, of course, of the state religion and so on and so on. All of that is the establishment. So the repealing, which was a long process in America, about 50 or 55 years, the repealing of those laws, which I'm calling deregulation, that's the disestablishment process. I wonder if you could say something to kind of like, if you could zoom in a little bit, some particular examples, because part of what makes this project so interesting is that you're, is that it's looking at all the, all these different states. And so I'm curious, as you're talking about kind of in general, what establishment might mean, and then what disestablishment would mean, how, how do some maybe take a couple of states and say a little bit about how, how they're established Churches were both different um, and similar because that's kind of I mean these different states they were established you, you mentioned some of them they, they were established by different some version of Christianity but they were established by different by different Christian groups but then how did establishment and disestablishment look different from say Massachusetts to Maryland I mean not I, you don't have to take those examples but sure. those are two clear, obviously different places yeah well if you take Virginia at first, uh, you had to be Church of England to hold a public office, but then they broadened that uh, because of a desire for toleration that you had to be a Protestant. And then several years later, they broadened that to being Christian and they defined uh, 
who a Christian was. And maybe they might define Christianity as being Trinitarian. So uh, that would include Catholics, but it would exclude Unitarians, for example. And then ultimately, and now we're talking much, much later than coverage of my book, but by uh, post-Civil War, uh, that would be broadened to simply a person who was theistic, or in other words, you could swear an oath in God's name, so you were a theist, but uh, uh, so, so, so that would include uh, Jews, Muslims, and so on. But that would, in, in Maryland, where uh, there was a much larger population of Catholics, although Catholics were still a minority, even in Maryland, um, they skipped the step where they went from the established Church of England in Maryland to simply being a Christian because the minority of Catholic population, uh, they too, of course, were citizens and voters. So it went right from the established church to all Christians. They didn't, they passed over that intermediate step of being Protestant only. And so that kind of difference would be reflected from state to state. Another example of the slow movement towards disestablishment, if you take uh, uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, for example, where the Congregational Church was the established church, which is the Church of the, the Puritans, there were minority faiths, in particular Baptists and a group called Separatists, which Separatists were people who had left the Congregational Church, but simply had established, uh, moved to churches, I guess I'm avoiding the word establishment, but started new churches that were not congregational, but on the other hand, they, they weren't Baptist or Quaker or, or uh, some other denomination, but they were separate from congregationalists. So uh, the, 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 the ministerial tax in Massachusetts and Connecticut initially just benefited congregational ministers. So if you were a Baptist or a separatist, you, you paid your ministerial tax, but then you also had to come up with more money to pay your Baptist minister, for example. So those minority groups remonstrated against that law, which of course was prejudice against or prejudice for the congregational church. So legislators said, well, we're going to soften our law and we're going to allow uh, a taxpayer option. And the option is you get to send your tax to the church of your choice, uh, so long as it's a dissenting church. Now, you couldn't send your money to the Catholic church. We're not going to tolerate them, but you, we are going to tolerate Baptists and Separatists, for example, or Presbyterians. So the, the taxpayer, when he or she paid their taxes, could say, well, I want this to go to the congregational church, but they then could sign a piece of paper uh, which certified that they, in fact, attended a, a dissenting, tolerated church, and then their money would go to that pastor. So if you were Baptist, you could send your money to a Baptist church. So that was a reform, but you can still see there's a fair amount of regulation uh, in that. Now, of course, ultimately, when uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut and New Hampshire, for example, uh, and Vermont totally disestablished why they did away with the ministerial tax 
altogether. I've got a question for you. Um, and sort of moving from the micro, I guess, to more of the macro um, perspective. Um, and I'm not going to use these terms probably in a very technical sense for, but, um, you know, on the one hand, you have this kind of de jure establishment, it seems, that was obviously disestablishment occurred over these 50 or 55 years on the state level. Um, and I'm also curious as to whether or not there existed or continued to exist in some sense a sort of de facto establishment, for lack of a better term, insofar as the states used state power to reinforce and promote kind of the agenda of specific churches or religious denominations in a way that kind of reinforced kind of a Christian culture, perhaps more broadly speaking, you know, well into the 20th century, um, which seems to have kind of deteriorated to some extent in, in recent years. But I, I'm just curious as, the, as sort of the use of state power outside of an, a, a formally established church as a way to still push the agenda. Like for example, um, you, you know, if you look into even, I think into the late in the 1920s, efforts to prohibit um, Catholics from sending their children to Catholic schools and requiring them to go to public schools as a way to kind of uh, suppress Catholic identity, I guess, or Catholic sort of engagement. Um, so I'm sort of that sort of rambling question, but uh, kind of that that sort of general sensibility if if there is something to it or if I'm missing it. Yeah, no, no, you're not missing it at all, and uh, that that absolutely did happen. So the the kind of formal disestablishment process uh, in the original 13 states plus again Vermont, Kentucky, Ohio, that pretty much ended by the mid. 1820s. So that was the deregulating these formal laws which established the state church or uh, a state religion. Um, what you're talking about absolutely went on. And while there was a, a consensus, somewhat nationwide, that we should move towards this formal disestablishment, because of the dominance of Americans being mostly Protestant, there absolutely was what you're describing as a, a de facto establishment. And historians have published books to sort of cleverly recognize this as disestablishment a second time, for example, which is a focus on what were called common schools. Today we call them public schools. And the public schools did carry on for years and years throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century, um, a sort of a general pan-Protestant ethic. So the textbooks like the McGuffey Readers, if you've ever picked one of those uh, up, uh, were, were sort of promoting a general Protestant ethic in terms of uh, uh, social relations, and economic freedoms and uh, uh, things of that sort, marriage, family, etc. And the common schools or the public schools uh, had, uh, they, be, they would begin the classroom day with Bible reading and it would be uh, reading uh, not in the Vulgate but in the King James Version and uh, the prayer uh, in some cases might be uh, distinctly Protestant as opposed to just a, a more uh, ecumenical Christianity. Uh, even in the larger cultures, 
it was quite common for city councils, county commissions, uh, the state legislature to uh, begin their sessions in prayer. And, uh, and it would be often led by Protestant clergy, that there would be chaplains in state institutions, there would be a legislative chaplain, things of that sort. So, so that kind of Protestant general ethic went well into mid 20th century and of course became subjects of high profile US Supreme Court uh, opinions in the, in the um, late 1940s and then early 1960s where the Supreme Court to widespread condemnation uh, said that uh, prayer and their teacher-led prayer in public schools violated the establishment clause to have religion classes in public schools that were even optional, uh, but for credit. Uh, in, in 1948, that was uh, deemed by the Supreme Court to be uh, violative of the Establishment Clause. So that's exactly what you're, you're referring to as a, a de facto religious establishment. And, and that did absolutely carry on. But this particular book is pretty much brought to a close uh, the early 1830s because that, that was the date of the last disestablishment. Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was the last state to disestablish in this more formal sense that I'm talking about. This may be um, an uninformed question, but just kind of going off of what, what you just said, and, and also based on what you said at the beginning and talking about part of the rationale for this book is, is partly to influence um, decision makers, judges who are, who are trying to look at using a historical method of interpreting these issues in terms of constitutional law. And so kind of based on what you're saying, though, I, I just wonder if even just the premise of, of what your book is doing challenges some of those Supreme Court decisions you just discussed, where you're saying that these, this facto civil religion was, has been seen by some quarters as being a violation of the Establishment Clause. But it seems like your work would show that that's not actually true because the, well, I don't know, maybe I'm misinterpreting but I wonder, could you comment on that, on how your book would speak to that, th this idea, perhaps a misunderstanding even of what the establishment clause of our constitution means for our, for our country as a whole? So in a broad sense, the, the team that we put together to come up with this book, which uh, I should explain, that there's 21 chapters. So chapter one is, is partly introductory Partly it describes our project uh, and it makes 10 findings. But there are 20 more chapters and each of those chapters is freestanding. And we recruited um, about half of those chapters are by historians at academic institutions, universities and colleges. And uh, another uh, five or six are academic political scientists who, uh, who, who focus on the history of the American founding. And then we had a smattering of finally law professors who again, focus on uh, American legal history of the founding period. So we, we picked people who had already been published and had been recognized in these areas, but each one was assigned a chapter 
uh, and a chapter is a state. So of course we covered the original 13 states, but then we, we covered others like, I haven't mentioned Ohio. Uh, Ohio was the first state in the Northwest Territory and, uh, and it was settled as a result of the Northwest Ordinance, uh, which was uh, 1787. The Northwest Ordinance was even before the United States government was formed, which was uh, two years later. And Ohio was initially settled by frontiers people, but they were people from New England moving west. So if they were from New England, they were Congregationalists. So Ohio initially, like a little congregational uh, establishment, and, and they had glebes and everything. So, so Ohio has a story to tell. And one, one of the first things that we begin to notice as our chapters came in my co-editor and I, is uh, that the story that's being told state by state was contrary to a couple of conventional wisdoms. One is that the American story of religious liberty is essentially very early on began colony by colony or state by state. Pretty quickly, once we had a First Amendment, it was a national story and it was a national movement. Uh, with the First Amendment being the model. And it turns out none of that's true, absolutely zero. Not a single author of a single chapter, as they described the disestablishment story in their state, not a single state looked to the First Amendment, zero. It never came up. They did not look to the federal model at all, zero. Well, Professor Usbeck, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit, what were, the, what were some of the theological faith-based reasons for disestablishment, especially given all the different faith traditions in the various states and in areas of the country? Could you talk yeah. about what were the reasons based on faith? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me say what it was, which as it turns out is finding number four in our chapter one, then the findings we made only after all of our chapters came back. And then let me, let me say what it was not. I think there's a myth out there, because we've been told this, that what drove forward disestablishment is Americans were of all sorts of religions, this huge, big pot of different religions, not necessarily a melting pot, but... Uh, a, a pluralism of religion. And everybody and wanted religious liberty for themselves. They didn't necessarily want it for others. And, uh, but everybody was a minority. And so in order to get religious liberty for yourself, you had to grudgingly grant it to others. And therefore, that's how American religion, religious liberty came about. Nobody, nobody reports that story. That's not how it happened. So how it did happen was, so you had the established religion and by and large, the people in power wanted to keep that power. Unsurprisingly, that's human nature. But dissenters obviously uh, were discriminated against and could not fully practice their faith as they understood it. So they were chafing under the establishment and they wanted disestablishment, but they wanted it for religious reasons. 
For example, they didn't want a state that was funded by the government because government-funded religion ultimately is religion which takes its signals from government. And they wanted voluntaristic religion. And so this came to be called voluntarism. And it meant that religion or the church should be funded by individual volunteers voluntarily giving money to their church out of uh, you know, Christian responsibility for wanting to support their own faith. So, so they recoiled against government-funded religion, which they saw as corrupting, and they wanted an uncorrupted faith, and so they wanted each people or a follower of the faith to support his or her own faith. And they saw biblical reasons as they understood it for doing so. So you, you can imagine the sort of verses that they would go to. For example, uh, Christ before Pilate saying, well, my kingdom is not of this world. And so they used that to say, well, my kingdom, Christ's kingdom is not of the government, but it's, it's from God. And they used the um, render under Caesar and render under God verse to say, that uh, the church, in order to be pure and truly following Christ, uh, needs to be uh, separated from the state uh, in order to uh, move forward the gospel. And, and of course, the church transcends national boundaries, and, uh, and, 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 and a church tends not to do that when it's a state church and so on. So, that, so, so disestablishment was driven by dissenters for what they understood to be biblical reasons. Can I ask a follow-up to that? Um, because you mentioned the voluntarism part of it, um, how important the idea of, of choosing, being able to choose one's religion. Uh, and part of that, and, and I'll admit that I'm kind of bringing in um, a contemporary issue that I sometimes see, an issue that I see, out, see that plays out today, uh, but it still makes me wonder with this, um, what's happening at the time of disestablishment, all these people are Christians of some sort. I, the, I, the emphasis on voluntary religion, you can see how there could be some tension with, with um, Judaism there, where individuals at least don't really get to choose that they are, especially males, uh, this, is, you know, this comes up sometimes in, in debates about circumcision. And so I just, it, I, so I can't help but wonder, what was the role or what was the reasoning in thinking about uh, non-Christian religion. Uh, I, I, under, I can kind of understand the rationale from the Christian dissenter point of view, but I wonder like for other religious groups, how were they addressed in these debates? Yep, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Well, in the period of our examination, you know, which again was, was picked for us since we're examining the period of formal disestablishment, which ended, uh, very early, uh, 1832, 1833. So we were looking at 1776 to 1832, uh, 33. In that period, while of course the Christians were aware of, of course, Judaism, uh, and then uh, sort of major religions more generally, Hinduism, Buddhism, and uh, Muslims, apart from Judaism, those religions, those other religions were not present. So they were not part of the story. And the Jewish communities were very, very tiny 
and very, very few. Now we hear about them, for example, the, the community up in Rhode Island, where President Washington uh, uh, acknowledged a, a letter of congratulation that they sent to him, and he went up there for a visit, and then uh, wrote a letter back to them, thanking uh, them for their hospitality and, and writing a, a famous letter of, of toleration, which our Jewish community and Christian community too celebrate uh, the toleration of Washington. But those groups in a, in a political social impact, it was zero. That the story was uh, mostly a Protestant story and some competition between what was just forming uh, in a more solidified way is a Protestant denominationalism. And then Catholics were a minority, still fairly few. Uh, the German Catholic and Irish Catholic immigration really didn't get started until after the 1820s. So the Catholic story, Catholics were fairly few, even in Maryland, they, uh, most Catholics were in Maryland, which as you know was founded by a Catholic, but even in Maryland, it was the Church of England established forcefully <laughs> and uh, uh, through military takeover. And, and Catholics chafed under discrimination in Maryland, where, where even they, there they were uh, a minority. So it's a Protestant denominationalism and then Protestant Catholic story. And, uh, and so, so when, it, when it came to the politics of deregulation and toleration, it, it, was the, it was a Protestant Catholic story. And I should add, America is, is a product of Mother England. After all, our colonies were British colonies. So America was British. And to be British is to be anti-Catholic. You know, it goes back to Henry VIII forward. I'm sure your listeners know that story. So yes, America was anti-Catholic, and which is why Catholics in Maryland had a tough time. Uh, <laughs> you're talking to, yeah, you're talking, two, two of us are Maryland Catholics, one of us is a Virginia, Virginia Catholic. So I, I know for sure those, those two guys have uh, Well, the Virginians were the problem sometimes, weren't they? Quite early on, it was the Virginians coming over and causing problems for the for us. I, and I live actually very close, not just to the Bladensburg Cross, but to the to a memorial to the Calvert family. So, so yeah, so this is... Uh-oh. So, anyway. problem, problems from Virginia is a polite way. I mean, they sent army and, uh, and a couple of ships to invade Maryland. So, yeah. And, and that was Vir Virginia Anglicans, uh, oh. taking over the the Maryland Catholics. So, but but I wanted I wanted to mention, like you were rightly angling, Aaron, for for where were the tensions, and that there was new. This is really interesting. There was new tension with what they called free thinkers, uh, like Thomas Paine, uh, and new thinkers was a polite way of saying unbelievers that they they might be deists. They might believe that there's a God, but they didn't believe in what they called, uh, and I don't run away from this term, they didn't believe in revealed religion. Well, if you're a biblical Christian, you, of course, the Bible is God's revelation. 
if you're a biblical Christian. So what these free thinkers were rejecting was Christianity. And that created tension. And there, it was tension even in the first federal Congress uh, of 1789, which is when the Bill of Rights was, was drafted and reported out to the states. So, so there, were, there were members of the House of Representatives standing up and saying, well, we don't want to patronize unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? So I have a, a question that's admittedly and apologetically maybe a little bit off topic from your book or it extends more past the, uh, the, the clear framework of, of what you wrote about or what your authors wrote about. But you mentioned earlier on, and I paraphrase that this whole disestablishment issue was not a federal story, but it was really a story about the states. And that when looking at it, you realize that the First Amendment played basically no role in, um, in sort of the disestablishment on a state-by-state -state level or appeals to the First Amendment. And yet, if you look at today or you know, past the, the disestablishment phase, it has very much become a federal story if not exclusively a federal story, it seems, you know, in terms of what does it mean to be an established, you know, establishment and religion or free exercise, you know, how did that happen? Why did, why did it become such a federal story? And why has the First Amendment, which wasn't very important early on, become so central to this, this really this contemporary story of religious freedom and yeah. establishment? Yeah, no, no, that's an excellent question. Um, and and maybe we'll have to close with it. So yes and no. Yes, it's a federal story. It came about because the Supreme Court, under the doctrine of incorporation, which is taking the Bill of Rights, which only applied to the federal government, and amendment by amendment or phrase by phrase, incorporating it through the 14th Amendment and applying it to state and local governments. So the free exercise clause was incorporated in 1940. The establishment clause was incorporated in 1947 and so on. So if you've been to law school, that's part of the story that you learn there, or you take constitutional law from a political science faculty member as an undergraduate. So yes, it's become a federal story because the Supreme Court made it a federal story. But I wanna go back to something I said at almost at the beginning. So when we look at the First Amendment, what did the words free exercise mean? What did the word establishment mean? That we should have no establishment. Well, you, in order to know what they mean, you have to look at the state-by-state -state disestablishment because those words, there never was a federal establishment, therefore never a federal disestablishment. So if you wanna know what those words mean, what motivated Americans to want to disestablish, to want free exercise, which they didn't have under a state church system, they wanted full free exercise, what those terms meant, you have to go state by state. Well. I think we are running to the end of our time. Honestly, I could talk about this for at least another two more hours with y'all. Um, this is really interesting to me. Personally, I've had a lot of fun with this conversation, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for your flexibility to, to all of you. Um, this is kind of a new, a new thing, and I'm kind of a Luddite, so this whole, all of the video conferencing and all this sort of thing is, is definitely not my preferred medium for conducting these things but I think this has worked Aaron, out well <laughs> Aaron you did great I know yeah you did great <laughs> I'm I think forced we all to... did great yeah we I'm did such great. a I was always I was the last person to ever get a smartphone or even to get a, a mobile phone when I was in college and but I think this worked out well and this is really I you know I've had the opportunity to look at parts of the text 
haven't been able to read the full book. Um, but really, this conversation has made me even more interested in, in working through it. So, Professor Espect, um, thank you for, again, for your time today. And just, just for our listeners, the name of the book, again, it's, it is Disestablishment and Religious Dissent, Church-State Relations and the New American States, 1776 to 1833. Very interesting. So really appreciate what you've done with it. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.